Hi everyone and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is Rachel Pether. I'm the Senior Advisor at Skybridge Capital, a global alternatives investment firm, as well as being the MC for SALT, a thought leadership forum and networking platform that encompasses business, finance and politics. SALT Talks is a series of digital interviews with the world's foremost investors, creators and thinkers. Just as we do at our Global SALT events, we aim to empower really big, important ideas and provide our audience a window into the mind of subject matter experts. Today, I'm very excited that we have a subject matter expert with us, Dr. Russell Reed. Russell is the Group Managing Partner for the Sea Change Group of investment funds, companies and advisors dedicated to transforming the production, distribution and consumption of natural resources around the globe. Russell also serves as a senior advisor to MSCI. Prior to Sea Change, Russell has been the CIO of not one, but three major asset owners, the Alaska Permanent Fund Corporation, the Gulf Investment Corporation and CalPERS. He served as chairman of the Investors Committee of the President's Working Group on Financial Markets under Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson, and he's also been recognized by Institutional Investor as one of the world's most effective chief executives. Dr. Reed has multiple degrees and he received both his master's in economics and doctorate in political economy from Stanford University. Russell, welcome to SALT Talks. Great to be here, Rachel. Now, this conversation could go in so many different directions because I know you have experience in sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, natural resources, sustainability, but I'm going to try and focus on institutional asset owners today. Before I do that, perhaps you could just tell me a bit more about your personal background and how you ended up back here in the Middle East. So um, the Middle East is a particularly important place, but not for the reasons that many people think. Of course, when you when when investments uh, when investment when the investment community thinks of the Middle East, they oftentimes think of the sovereign wealth funds, and that's certainly part of the story. But what they don't think about uh, is uh, the geography and the centrality of the Middle East, and in particular, the way I look at it is UAE and Abu Dhabi, um, as the financial and uh, logistical center uh, for an emerging region. And that emerging region that people don't really think about, we call the Miasa region, Middle East, Africa, Southern Asia. And it's, um, it encompasses about half of the world's humanity. Um, so this is interesting because it's half the world's humanity. It's a disproportionate amount of its growth. Um, it's the major consumption uh, story for the world. And yet it's really off the radar screens uh, for institutional investors. So the Middle East is not just a source of capital, but it can be a destination as well. And that's really, in terms of big ideas, I think the transformation we're going to be seeing in part is that this side of the world that investors have really shied away from, oftentimes for good reasons, is going to be coming onto their radar screen in a big way. Although I must admit your background doesn't look like you're in the Middle East, but we know, we know the truth. Uh, you know, you've had the luxury of working with both an established pension fund, CalPERS, and also one of the world's most respected sovereign wealth funds, the Alaska Permanent Fund. 
Before we go deeper into their asset allocation, perhaps you could talk a bit about some of the key differences in approach between the two. So uh, sovereign funds and pension funds share some real similarities, but um, there are also some real key differences that people don't necessarily realize. One of them is linked to um, uh, the nature of sovereign wealth funds themselves, and that is they are artifacts of national wealth or in the U.S. or, or state sovereign wealth funds, but they're the um, th that gives them a different status. Um, that, for instance, when it comes to currencies, an agreement that was reached just a few years ago was that sovereign wealth funds would generally be treated as the same as the monetary authority of that country when it came to foreign currency conversion. So this is important. For instance, if you think of China, um, uh, the way that currencies work, an institutional investor, you know, uh, has some work to do to repatriate um, their investments to their currency out of China. But that's not the case with the sovereign wealth fund. So a sovereign wealth fund has the currency convertibility of the monetary authority of that country. Um, so they generally can uh, convert currencies, for instance, in a place like China at all times and onshore. Um, this is a very different uh, uh, set of circumstances. It also generally relates to the access to fixed income markets, to local fixed income markets. Besides the structural, um, besides the structural feature of being a sovereign fund associated with the monetary authority, there's also a difference in the liabilities. Of course, you know, all too often when it comes to investment funds, the investment teams, you know, think about their investments, but they don't necessarily focus on what they're investing for. This, this, this happens all too often. Um, but the liability difference is pretty dramatic. And with sovereign funds, um, they can have very, very long-term uh, liabilities um, or, you know, obligations, you know, eventually to the state. Um, generally, the sovereign wealth funds are more global in their character. Um, they are longer term in their character. So the, um, you know, in general, the asset liability management problem does not, uh, does not bite nearly as, as, uh, as closely. Um, uh, so the sovereign wealth funds have really come of age, uh, particularly in the last 10 years. There was also a very important change, I should mention, that occurred um, before the global financial crisis versus after the global financial crisis. And in many ways, before the global financial crisis, there was uh, sort of a suspicion you know, about sovereign wealth funds and, you know, would they be good actors? Uh, would they, are, would they be positive um, in terms of their contribution to the uh, international capital markets? Um, and, um, and or, or, or would they be sort of a tool of statecraft? Um, so there was real concern about this, um, uh, particularly from the United States. And um, so that was before, that was before the global financial crisis. Global financial crisis hits, and opinions um, changed completely. What happened in the global financial crisis is that the sovereign wealth funds were an unambiguous source of stability. 
in the financial system, the global financial capital markets. Um, and that was unexpected. So they went from being uh, viewed uh, with suspicion to being absolutely critical um, to the health of the global financial system. So, so I would say that the acceptance of, of uh, sovereign wealth funds uh, globally as sort of uh, the um, uh, investment partners of choice, um, that has really taken root. So for doing international partnerships, for being welcomed by the um, by host countries and, and by the financial community, sovereign wealth funds are now in a wonderful position, uh, even better, I think, than the standing of most, um, of most pension funds. I think that's a great point that you raise about perceptions. I know in the global financial crisis, they really came in as your most white knights, didn't they? Particularly with some of the banks, we saw that with the Middle East, uh, we saw that with Barclays and City taking on a lot of Middle East money to help them through the crisis. Do you think that sovereign wealth funds are, are considered smart money in the world of investing? It's okay to just have capital, but do you think they're also seen as savvy investors? And maybe you could talk about that from a perceptions point of view as well. I think they are viewed as smart money. Now, the, um, there is a range of sovereign wealth funds, of course. The largest sovereign wealth funds have taken a, um, have taken a, uh, a very interesting role that's quite different than what exists in, uh, among pension funds. Pension funds are largely allocators. Um, uh, they do some direct investments, uh, depending on the size, uh, nature of the pension fund, but they're, you know, they're, they're allocators first. Um, sovereign wealth funds, and particularly the largest sovereign wealth funds, have become direct investors in, in a very significant way. Um, now, that's, that's true among the largest sovereign wealth funds, but it's very significant. You know, they are they are um, there are significant um, direct investors as some of the largest investment management firms are. So that that role from being what they used to be, they used to be largely allocators like the like the pension funds, um, but that has changed. The role of the sovereign fund and the largest of the pension funds to become co-investors, direct investors. Um, changes the dynamic fundamentally um, with the investment management community. And it's not just about the management of fees. It's that the, um, the sovereign wealth funds um, uh, can have significant teams and they become uh, potentially excellent partners um, for some strategic investments in areas like infrastructure, for instance, that require um, you know, significant amounts of capital. So in line with that smart money angle, and certainly one thing that we've seen in the sovereign wealth fund community has been this huge push towards partnerships and often with other sovereign wealth funds. Where are you seeing some of the greatest innovations in that space? Because the two that I'm thinking of actually both involved the Alaska Permanent Fund. So perhaps you could talk us through an example of a transaction or a deal that you worked on there. So one of the biggest transformations and uh, points of enthusiasm, I think, is that the shift from being an allocator um, to being a direct investor and co-investor has another uh, potentiality that's really promising. And we pursued these uh, from 
from um, uh, from uh, an Alaskan perspective, and and that is um, that we can retain uh, we, the sovereign funds and other pensions um, can not just be allocators um, to uh, you know among investment managers, but they can take a more proactive role. They can have a thematic approach where they hire interview and hire investment managers to conduct certain mandates. We did this, you know, uh, in two significant ways uh, from Alaska. One, one was we partnered with other, um, with other pools of capital from um, uh, in the Middle East in, and in Europe and in Asia um, to form what's called Capital Constellation. Uh, capital Constellation um, is, uh, is intended to uh, take talented uh, promising private equity teams and give them their foundational mandates, uh, and also take a strategic stake um, in their uh, in their in their enterprises. So instead of it's, uh, the idea is that uh, it would catalyze and accelerate the success of those private equity investment teams. Um, and, uh, and we wanted to participate also in the strategic benefits um, of being of being an owner um, with that. So we we pooled our capital together. Note the difference. We weren't just being sold to. We engaged the investment management community um, um, as a collection of, of funds. So we were not going to manage. Uh, those strategic investments directly, um, but we were going to pool our capital together and act in a concerted way. I think you know, historically that was that was really um, uh, quite different. Namely, um, uh, the the asset owners did not act in concert. So I think the uh, ability for asset owners to increasingly want to work together and and uh, not necessarily look to disintermediate the investment management community, but to direct them into the themes, into the geographies that are of most interest to them. So that, that's a very different role. And we find that the investment management community has really welcomed um, that type of engagement. Second thing that we did is we um, launched into a, um, uh, an engagement for uh, related to uh, uh, equities um, in the markets comprised of the Miasa countries, so Middle East, Africa, and Southern Asia. Um, this was something um, that we, we were looking to take advantage of um, uh, in terms of uh, the fast growth in these economies. So again, we were leading sort of um, uh, the charge of, about uh, inclusion, which countries could be investable. Um, which stocks could be investable within those markets, and that we it was it was a way that we saw of capturing the high growth of those countries. You know, we have an interesting challenge, um, which is that global growth, um, and this and this is abstracting from the current COVID crisis, but absent that, in general, um, uh, worldwide growth has been reasonably good. Um, um, and uh, but the interesting part is that um, the growth is shifting, and the, the growth is shifting from sort of uh, the OEC, uh, the OECD markets to um, particularly to the Miasa region. Um, so there's this question, you know, if growth is shifting to other these other parts of the world, how do we capture those returns? Um, um, because um, if you don't make the adaptation, you face the prospect of 
considerably lower long-term returns in your established markets. There's so many uh, parts to what you just said that I'd like to pick up on. So the first piece that you raised, the capital constellation, and you spoke about being an active investor. This obviously leads into ESG because you can have more of a, a say in the companies that you're investing in. How do you see that playing out in the asset owner community? Because I know CalPERS, for example, has been very proactive on this front. Is this something that you've you've seen a shift towards more, the more of this activism? It is, and I think the ESG um, lens uh, is one of the most important uh, changes over the, um, it, it really over a very recent period. If you and that recent period is over the past, say, 24 months. And, um, and, and I want to contrast with a difference um, that I saw. There, there was um, a nascent uh, ESG investment uh, effort uh, prior to the global financial crisis in, in uh, 08, 09. And what happened there is that the global financial crisis um, acted to defer interest in ESG investing. It was, there was a kind of a view that the house is on fire, you know, in institutional plans and we have other fish to fry, you know, we, um, uh, so uh, ESG considerations will come later. Um, uh, now what we've had, including with the COVID crisis is the opposite reaction. Um, it is not that the the, uh, the, the initiatives uh, related to environmental, social, and governance investing have diminished. They've actually increased in importance. Um, so um, uh, it's been a fundamentally different response. And we see this as a real opportunity. Um, and it's an opportunity that is also aligned with a challenge. And that challenge is um, related to the utilization of natural resources. And it's related to some real environmental challenges. Of course, we hear about global warming. Um, that is not the only challenge that is out there. The global plastics problem, you know, looms uh, as a very large problem uh, as well, uh, chronic shortages of water. And from an investment standpoint, this creates an opportunity. Um, so, um, in fact, without galvanizing um, uh, capital into attractive investment opportunities, you know, these, uh, those ESG problems will not be solved. And Russell, who was leading that charge pre-financial crisis on the ESG front? Was that being driven from like a regulatory perspective or was it being spearheaded by the sovereign funds themselves? Well, I think pensions um, and sovereigns together um, have both played um, a, a, you know, a disproportionately important role. Um, the rise of ESG investing um, uh, has been again relatively recent uh, in terms of uh, being done at scale. But the first manifestation of this really at scale is with existing um, publicly traded equities. Um, so the idea that has appealed to many funds is, for instance, having uh, perhaps a portfolio of stocks, a uh, large portfolio of stocks that has the same uh, risk, fact, risk and return factors as a market cap weighted index, except with a lower carbon footprint. Um, that's sort of an example. You know, if you wanted to have uh, the essential performance of, of the um, of, 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 uh, market cap weighted indexes, but wanted to have less of a footprint, 
then you could manifest that in, a, in your stock portfolio. I think the bigger challenge is, and what will ultimately be more important, will be the private markets. Um, the private markets is where institutional investors can actually lead to direct transformation um, um, in, the, um, in the global uh, consumption story, in the global natural resources story, and the global environmental story. So um, that is looming as uh, a very big opportunity. And it's one in which the emerging markets, particularly the Miyaza region, loom disproportionately large. Um, Miyaza region accounts for almost 100% of the prospective population growth of the planet um, over the course of the coming decades. You know? So 60% um, of that would be in Africa. Um, so um, along with that population growth, is the consumption growth story. So, the, um, uh, so we, have, we have a challenge uh, because this is, uh, we have a region that was going to account for a disproportionate amount of some of the most compelling potential investment themes and it's sort of off the radar screen of our traditional investment community. I'd love to pick up more on some of the points that you talk about with regards to the, the growth and consumption story. And you also spoke about projects being investable. So if you just hone in on the, the G part of that ESG equation and the governance, how do you approach the lack of transparency or the perceived lack of transparency in some of these emerging markets where you know, it can be difficult to access data in some cases? So this is uh, a big issue, and um, but it's an issue which is um, which um, the solving of it becomes part of the attractiveness of the market. So you know what do you have um, in the emerging markets in general? Governance is a um, governance is a challenge, but it's uh, but some of the most uh, promising companies in the world actually are born out of the emerging markets. We think of Saudi Aramco um, as an example of um, uh, in which governance can actually be quite good on a corporate level. Um, uh, and the, um, but the, uh, what we see is, um, uh, one is the important role of the public markets. Um, so the public markets themselves instill a discipline and transparency. If you're going to be publicly traded, then you have to have, you know, you, in order to be credible uh, with global investors, you have to be, um, you have to be transparent. You have to be, um, you have to be auditable. Um, and uh, so the the inclusion of uh, enterprises in the global capital markets is inherently a disciplining tool. Um, so we've seen a, a dramatic improvement in governance with, um, a, a, as the countries and as the companies become part of the capital markets. Um, we also see um, the importance of, of uh, transitions from private market investments to public market investments. You know, why are public market investments interesting? in part also because they provide a path to liquidity. So if you're investing in a place like Africa in the private markets, which can be very promising, you need to be able to think of an exit or find an exit path. And this is even more important in the emerging markets than it is in the OECD, where you also have to think about what your exit's going to be when it comes to the, to the uh, private markets. Um, but unlike uh, the OECD, 
in the emerging markets, you cannot necessarily count on a uh, on a strategic exit. Um, um, you have to be able to see a path in general toward uh, becoming publicly traded. So um, there are some very important uh, features here. You know, there was a choice that Aramco had between uh, listing in London, listing in New York, and they ended up listing in Saudi Arabia. Um, and this was an important choice um, because it, it also signaled um, uh, something very fundamentally different. That it, it, it wasn't that you had to list, you know, in a major um, in a major market um, to be credible. You can actually list in your local market, and that that would be helpful for the development of your. Uh, local and regional uh, economies. So I think that that choice of Saudi Aramco to list in Saudi Arabia was a particularly important signal, you know, to the emerging markets in general. It was almost like saying, yes, we are good enough in some ways, wasn't it? Like, yes, we are just as good as a New York Stock Exchange or a London Stock Exchange. If they chose a different path, if they had listed in London or New York first, it would have given a very different signal, not just in Saudi Arabia, but across the emerging markets that to emerging companies, if um, that you had to list, you, you, you would have, uh, it would have sent a signal that if you want to be taken seriously as an, uh, as an investment to the global capital markets, you have to list in London or New York um, or Hong Kong. Um, so um, uh, I believe that that was a pivotal decision, not just for Aramco, for the emerging markets. And you talk about just picking up a little bit more on the investable side of the equation. We've discussed the transparency piece, but with regards to the Mayasa region, and you're talking about these large asset owners that need to deploy multi-millions of dollars, are there actually projects of, of scale for them in the private markets and particularly ones that actually incorporate all, all of these ESG factors? So this is one of the important challenges, you know, uh, from a big picture perspective, you know, is there the need for capital in places like Africa? And the, of course, the answer is yes. However, and the however is an important thing, the, uh, the number and scale of, of bankable projects is limited. You know, does Africa need a trillion dollars of infrastructure investment? Sure it does. Are there a trillion dollars of investable bankable projects? Not, not in the, you know, not in the near term. Um, so how do we bridge this gap? How do we create, you know, how do we help um, with, um, you know, uh, establishing a pathway toward bankable projects? And, and here um, there are some, um, uh, you know, there are some important lessons, you know, about um, um, what are sort of the key needs and opportunities. And we're seeing some of the, some of the answers with, for instance, the digital economy, um, that Africa is proving to be an excellent source of growth for the digital economy. Um, so if you go to a place like Kenya, it's surprising, you know, how ubiquitous our smartphones and how advanced the applications are. They, in many ways, have skipped traditional infrastructure development. Kenya is a middle-income country uh, by global standards. It is not a poor country uh, by World Bank standards anymore. And um, you can sort of see a different development path. I, I think that the infrastructure uh, needs associated with energy and communications are sort of leading the path 
toward bankable projects. And those are proving to be um, pretty straightforward from a governance perspective as well. So I think um, in addition to that logistics, uh, the African logistics problem, you know, looms as a very, um, very interesting opportunity. Along with that um, will be the role of distributed energy. Um, Alaska, uh, Alaska um, Africa will not have an established grid system such as we have in North America and in Europe. They won't want to do it. You know, it would be, it would be given how vast the continent is, um, it is going to require a distributed energy uh, system. And that's pretty exciting uh, opportunity as well for new technologies. So what we have is we have many great technologies being born out of places like Silicon Valley and, uh, and, um, and MIT and in Europe and Australia, but some of the best applications and scalability of these technologies won't be in places like the United States. It'll be in places um, like the Miyaza region. You know, India um, um, is, a, is kind of a great case in point. Now, what's the, what's the incremental energy need in India? It's a lot greater than any place in Europe or North America. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, all technology has to solve a need or a gap. And I guess the need or the gap is typically much larger when you look at these emerging markets. You know, you can make so much more of an impact with such a small, you know, a small change in, in the lifestyle or the, the technology. And, and, and I think what, what it leads to also is that it, 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 those sorts of investments, many of the infrastructure investments in North America or in Europe uh, can be commoditized uh, in a way that they, it, it limits or puts a ceiling on what the potential returns are. That is different than um, in a high growth region like the Miyaza region. You know, so um, commoditized returns um, can be, um, uh, can convey a low degree of risk, but also a low degree of potential return. And I think the growth prospects of uh, capturing infrastructure opportunities uh, in the emerging markets, particularly in the Miyaza region, are one of the great themes we're going to be seeing. Fantastic. Thanks, Russell. And we've had a number of questions coming in from the audience, and broadly you can group these into the Miyaza region and ESG. So I'll just start with one of the ESG questions first. From the Tesco Pension Fund, he asked, to what extent do we all have the same dreams and objectives around ESG, but because of inconsistent approaches, we're not pulling in the same direction? Well, it's a perfectly good insight. Um, what, we're, what we're absolutely seeing is that um, uh, institutional investors are, uh, have become much more sensitized to ESG concerns, but they have very different conceptions of what that means. Um, and it can be vastly different. Now, that being said, um, there are a few big themes that, that, that are reasonably consistent among many of those investors. Clearly, climate change is one of the big themes. Um, so that, that is one where there's a critical mass of institutional investors that can pursue not only a configuration of public market um, uh, you know, stock portfolio investments, but also private market investments. Um, 
Um, some of the other uh, now some of the other themes are emerging, and they don't have to. They can make a big difference without having to 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 um, scoop up the majority of uh, investors. And I think, for instance, um, we take take a look at smart cities and uh, and uh, um, and consumption related opportunities in Africa. You know how. Uh, Africa now uh, accounts for about a trillion dollars um, in consumer um, uh, in consumer purchases. Um, uh, a trillion dollar consumer sector is actually meaningful. You know, it's it's one which um, it, it's uh, it's it's one of the great opportunities, and that is where um, you know a critical mass of of uh, investors doesn't have to be the majority of investors. So I think that there will be um, for investors, institutional investors that can identify and develop the bankable opportunities in these high growth regions, that is going to be the antidote to potentially slower growth in the OECD. That's actually a really great segue into another question that's come in on China's role in the Mayasa region. Obviously China is moving through with the One Belt, One Road and the New Silk Road, this will lead to indebtedness of many countries in the Mayasa region. How are you seeing that playing out, particularly because many of the investments are on the infrastructure front? Maybe you could give your views on the One Belt, One Road initiative. Well, my view is that overall, this is a positive. Um, uh, it's not without its issues. Uh, and as you point out, there is a level of indebtedness with a number of the African countries, which has led a number of those countries to become cautious, you know, on, um, but I view it in a, in a, in a completely healthy way. Um, is Africa in general better off because of the commitments from China? Unambiguously, yes. You know, that it is, um, if they did not have those investments and commitments from China, um, the growth, the economic growth prospects of the continent would not be the same as they are today. Um, uh, and it's probably reached a pretty healthy state, namely, um, uh, African countries are now being much more judicious, you know, about the types of capital that they, um, that they and, and conditions uh, under which they, they accept investment. Um, so they need investment, want investment, um, and China has been unambiguously helpful, but they are no longer um, simply accepting investments with lots of strings attached um, um, without, you know, doing their own due diligence. Um, so I think it's actually reached a very healthy state. And um, so this is a, a pretty exciting part of the story, but China has been has been an important piece in this in this whole puzzle. Is China included in your Mayasa strategy, or is that that's outward? You're looking at more the high growth, uh, younger demographic countries in the region. When we look at the Mayasa region as an investable uh, as an investable geography, um, we think of it as um, everything but China in the Belt and Road Initiative. You know, so it is, um, and in many ways, it's what people historically have thought about related to the emerging markets. Um, you know, China is no longer a, a, a high population growth country. It's likely to be declining in population. Interestingly enough, today, um, China, India, and Africa 
have the same population. They each have 1.4 billion people. This is uh, uh, this is a very interesting crossroads. Um, uh, however, the future of those three geographies, China, India, and Africa, is going to be quite different. Um, China will have a de declining population, whereas India will be increasing uh, to a projected 1.75 billion uh, at its peak. Um, Africa is expected to have a population by the end of the century of 4.3 billion people. Um, so um, this is a very different trajectory um, from you know, having the same population base as today. And so some of the things that we like to think about with the emerging markets are high population growth, our high economic growth, high consumption growth. Um, growth is, uh, is what we like to think about related to the emerging markets. And that's not necessarily what we think about with China. We think about that with the Miyazo region. We actually had a guest on Salt Talks last week from the Hong Kong Monetary Association. He made the comment that China will grow old before it becomes rich. So I guess that plays into your, your growth story. Um, and we have one final question to finish on. Um, you know, you speak very passionately about collaboration and this partnership approach. And when you're looking at some of the infrastructure needs in Africa, Many of them are actually pan-Africa. So if you're particularly looking at physical infrastructure like roads and uh, you know, train, train tracks and things like that, what would be your advice to the African nations in terms of collaborating with each other on, on these projects? What would be some of your, I guess, key rationales for collaborating together? So I think you're exactly right that the collaboration among African economies is likely to be particularly important. And it's not just trade zones, it's logistics. You know, um, when I think of the, um, some of the great challenges in Africa uh, to uh, creating bankable, investable projects, oftentimes they fall short because of logistics. Um, you can have uh, countries, uh, you can have, you know, countries with high populations with something on the order of a single major road. Um, and and uh, so um, how is the logistics problem gonna be solved? And in part, the logistics problem is going to be linked to energy and the, and the digital economy. And I think that's going to be an interesting thing that the logistics problem in Africa is likely to be solved different than how it was solved in North America and in Europe. Um, so I think, um, the digital economy is shaping up to be an important force in actually helping to solve the logistics issues. Um, doesn't mean you won't still need more traditional roads and, and other sorts of things, but the optimization um, of the logistics, I think, is something that crosses borders and requires uh, cooperation among the countries. And there's a big benefit to it. You can see it particularly in sectors such as agriculture. Um, where throughout much of the sub-Sahara, 30 to 50% of crops um, uh, rot in the fields. That is an informational problem along with logistics problem. Um, and uh, both can be solved in part, you know, through, through better technology. Fabulous. Well, thanks, Russell. I mean, it's been a pleasure speaking to you as always. Really appreciate you giving your time and covering so many topics. So thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thank you, Rachel.